Hello, and welcome to Raptor Reviews, a film discussion podcast of critical views by uncritical viewers. I'm your host, Adam Coley, and we will be discussing Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window with our special guest, Connor Dote of the band So Sorry. Hello, good to be here. So, as we discussed last time, a Rear Window is about a photographer who got sidelined by a pretty serious injury, um, and he's basically bedridden for, I think they said, seven weeks. And um, in that time, he looks out his windows at all of the his neighbors and what's going on in their lives. Um, and in that kind of voyeuristic state, he discovers that, well, he believes that one of his neighbors commit a murder and he tries to prove it from his windows. So Rear Window was directed by Alfred Hitchcock in 1954 and it stars Grace Kelly, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Thelma Ritter, Wendell Corey, and Aaron Burr. There is a, a just a plethora of really awesome facts about this movie, and I'll try and incorporate that as we go. Um, but just for starters, so you understand how incredible of a feat this was, the set is indoor. Even though there's like a courtyard and two buildings and you're looking in between the two, the whole set was was an indoor set. They used a thousand, yeah, a thousand uh, arc lights to simulate sunlight. And of course, when they turned them off, that would simulate you know nighttime. But it took 45 minutes for what we think is the lights to heat up, um, which seems like a long time, but it's much better than having to wait until it gets dark to shoot all the nighttime scenes. So they had a lot more flexibility when they were shooting. Um, it was nominated in 1955 for Academy Awards for Best Cinematography, Best Actor, Best Sound, and Best Screenplay. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't win any of them, which is, especially for Best Sound, as we'll get into, that's really a travesty. Um, the set itself was enormous it was i believe the measurements for it were something along the lines of 98 feet by 185 feet and it had to be 40 feet high with 32 apartments and the apartments all had running water and electricity and uh the actress who played miss torso actually lived in her apartment set for the month-long shoot um so it was really it was this incredible set that allowed them to do so much but it also required them to get a little creative Connor, how, how do you, what do you think the limitations and the benefits are of having a set like that? Well, I mean, first and foremost, for me, as as a fan of movies, I, I'm a really big fan of um, really limited uses of set and uh, and cast. Like, I, I, I'm really impressed by, like, a 12 Angry Men sort of thing where you're just, like, making the most out of one room and just, like, a, a, just a small group of people interacting within it. And it's, you know, very character-driven and stuff. And, and... Uh, rear window is a lot like that. Um, I mean, for one thing, um, the choice to use the, just the vantage point of, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, Jeff, um, like just the vantage point of his apartment, looking at the other apartments already is really intriguing and, and helps enhance your feeling of voyeurism as you're watching it, because you, you really are like you, like as, as all the characters have their different little character arcs you're watching it just from his window. Like you're literally looking into their window from across the courtyard instead of most movies where you are still having a voyeur experience of watching someone's life play out, but you're not like hovering over someone's shoulder or something. You're literally just like across the way staring at them. And that's totally because of the set, you know, it's totally because they actually took the time to give us an actual courtyard and, and give us something to look through. Well, and that's, and the importance of the vantage point of Jeff's apartment really isn't can't be understated. Yeah. I mean, it was 
it was the movie. I, th- I think something like 90% of the scenes were shot either in that room or from the perspective of looking out of that room. Yeah. It's actually kind of neat. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, had this huge set with 32 working ho- like apartments, but the only place he shot from and the only place he himself directed from mm. was that room. So all the actors in the other apartments had flesh-colored earpieces um, so that he could direct them from there. So it really can't be can't be understated how important it was. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and uh, just and there's lots of little touches throughout too that like really highlight um, just the very idea of like of voyeurism and stuff and like so so one of them of course being like. Um, you know, shooting everything from, from Jeff's apartment, but also, um, even just like one thing that I, that stuck out to me right away. I, and I, and I had seen this, this movie once before, but in the opening credits of the movie, it's all just a static shot of, um, like through a window and just people walking by on the street and stuff like that as the credits roll. And, you know, James Stewart as Jeff, so-and-so and all that. And then, um, and then when, the credits end and it goes into the movie it the camera just slightly dips through the window and it's and and you're just in the movie like the first scene begins well, that's where you're like staying, in an yeah. unbroken shot from the opening credits which was really great i thought yeah, absolutely yeah. And, and that's that's kind of a cool way to to introduce it i thought it's that that opening scene because it really it it sets up the movie in a way that's really really does the rest of the film justice like mm-hmm. you're they really don't spend – there's no narrator, you know? There's no person saying, Jeff, our photographer, you know, no doing what I did at the beginning of the episode. It's just yeah. you you showed the cast. You showed – like the actual cast on his leg. I mean, not the yeah. people in the movie. But then they showed, you know, the, all the actors. They showed the scene. They showed the set. Yeah. And, I mean, it was all show, no tell. And that's that's one of my favorite things in movies in general. I, I really hate too much supposition. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. It, so that's fantastic. Um, what do you think having a set that big – can do for your movie from a sound perspective well one of the things that um and actually this impacted the the use of light too but basically because they were using an actual physical courtyard between these apartments and actually um like you know as as you were telling me even like uh, as we were watching it and everything like so uh and what's the term the term is diegetic diegetic so um, so because all the sound was actually being generated from the actors within the scene, instead of it being put in post and everything, and because they were physically using a, like a brick and mortar courtyard yeah. to film it in, um, well, one, it's, it's really fascinating because you actually get the full dynamic effect of, um, of the sound in that space of like, if someone's yelling across the way, it sounds like someone's yelling across the way sure. and it's, you know, and it's actually audibly quieter than if you know, than if Jeff is in his apartment talking to, um, talking to his nurse that comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then even with light too, because a lot of times when they're shooting they're like the lights in the apartment aren't turned on, but the sun is out. Yeah. And so like you have like that single light source impacting everybody like in this, in, you know, throughout the whole set. Um, which which is really interesting when you compare it to um, how nice looking but unnatural the lighting is in most movies. Sure, it's like a, it's it's more natural lighting in, in this movie um, with an artificial sun, no less. Yeah, you know and that's <laughs> that's really 
that's that's ridiculous yeah. <laughs> that they were able to pull that off. Uh-huh. Um, I kind of said to you while we were watching this, can you imagine how hot that set must have been with a thousand arc lights? It oh must have been God. like perpetually at 90 degrees. Oh, you know? I know. <laughs> Just sweating. Uh, the, one of the first things it pans in on as it, as it comes into the apartment is a thermometer and it has it at like 90 something degrees. And that's not even something that's played up that much. It, like later in the movie, it, it pans over it again and it's like 70 degrees or something. I don't know if that's supposed to imply something thematically or something, but it's, but it was kind of funny when you mentioned that because I thought back to that. You know, I, th- I think it does, actually. It's, it's, I, it I, must be deliberate. Well, because, yeah. and kind of my, my theory behind that is uh, there's that kind of that old trope that in like suburbia or really tight living, uh, in the really hot days, everyone throws open their windows and mm-hmm. everybody's in their own, the shades are open, everybody's in their own, each other's business. That's a great point. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, that definitely sets up the fact that everybody is absolutely in everybody else's business in this movie. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's like, it, it's a soap opera. Yeah. I mean, it's a soap opera of body language. And I think body language is really the, the best way to convey this. Uh, there is this scene with a character named Miss Lonely Hearts, who um, mm-hmm. she's basically someone who's really in desperate need of love in her life. And um, she does a couple different things to convey that for instance she has a date that goes really really badly um and she at one point kind of pretends that she's letting a man into her house and but yeah. there's no one there but she sets a dinner for two and she's putting up this you know this facade of i'm having a wonderful time i met this wonderful wonderful man and yeah, no one's there play acting yeah and you just watch you just watch her demeanor it's it's bubbly and it's bright and then as reality sets in that she's alone mm-hmm. drinking with two glasses in her apartment she just sinks and just starts to cry, and it's it's beautiful. It's uh-huh. it's really haunting. It, I mean, body language conveys everything in this movie. There's like a married couple, and from their body language from the beginning of the movie to the end is so drastically different because a major theme, yeah, in this is kind of the effects of marriage on a man. Right. Well, because when the when those characters are first introduced, they're like they're they're literally. Um, well, they're not honeymooners, but they're newlywed. Like yeah. they show up, and uh, and you know he carries over over the threshold and everything, <laughs> right? And then um, and uh, Jimmy Stewart's character Jeff, um, throughout the movie, right? He's like um, he's basically uh, like contending with everyone telling him that he needs to make a commitment to his fantastic girlfriend, but he basically just doesn't want to marry yet. And he has some hangups over their incompatible lifestyle. And we'll get into that. I'm sure. Oh but, yeah, we should. But like, uh, but that newlywed, yeah, they're like, you, you get all these full character arcs of people that you never actually like really meet or talk to in the movie. And the newlyweds are like that because you see them at the beginning where it's like, you know, it's, it's all just like the celebration of their love and their marriage. And then like over the course of it, like by the end, it's, he's like opening the window to get some air and she's like baby can you come here and then he has to like go away again and then like you see him again later in the movie and he looks disheveled and tired and and he opens the window to get some air (laughs) honey yeah yeah i mean it's it's definitely i think a, a 1950s style approach to relationships too it's true where there's this real inequity as you know it's it's perceived at this time that a a woman tames a man you know Mm -hmm. and and that's not something that we think about or share today um hopefully yeah if if if, if you're if you're living your life right yeah you don't think that but that was a very common i mean perspective on marriage in that time um so you know a it was seen that a woman wants to get married and a man is doing his best to avoid it. Yeah. And it's, so that's kind of an unfortunate 
kind of side effect of, of, of this movie. But um, at the same time, it's explained incredibly well. Um, mm-hmm. There's also, there's a couple scenes where, you know, um, there's this nurse that comes um, from the insurance company to check on Jeff and his leg. And he has conversations on marriage. Um, Grace Kelly plays the love interest. Um, her name is Lisa in this movie. And mm-hmm. the, the uh, insurance provided nurse is basically saying she's perfect. How, how could you not want to marry her? She's not only perfect. She's too perfect. She's too talented. She's too beautiful. She's too sophisticated. She's too everything but what I want. Is um, what you want something you can discuss? He's yeah. going into this whole argument of, well, you know, can she hang with what I'm doing? Can can yeah. she can she deal with going to Finland in negative five degree weather? Can she eat fish heads? You know, can yeah. she get shot at? You know, those heels won't do too good in like Brazil. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's it's definitely all the characters around him want him to make a commitment, and he's just not willing to to the point where he's he's a jerk about it, especially to Grace yeah. Kelly who has said she wants nothing more than to just be with him and do whatever it takes to do that. And he just, he belittles her. I made a simple statement, a, a, a true statement, but I'll, I can back it up if you just shut up for a minute. But if your opinion is as rude as your manner, I don't think I care to hear it. Oh, come on, now simmer down. To the point of her, you think she's going to leave. But then yeah. she, when when the murder plot unfolds, she uses that as an opportunity to prove to him yeah. that she can she can she can do what he wants and i mean she takes incredible mm-hmm. risks and she believes him very quickly mm-hmm. um you know so she she proves to him that she can be who he doesn't think she's capable of being yeah and i mean obviously some of his hang-ups are due to her social standing because like he himself describes her as being high society like she's too sophisticated she's too ritzy uh, is this the lisa fremont who never wears the same dress twice only because it's expected of her. It's right off the Paris play. You think it'll sell? Well, that depends on the quote, you know. Let's see. Now, there's the airplane ticket over and import duties, hidden taxes, profit markup. A steal at $1,100. $1,100? I ought to list that dress on the stock exchange. So... You know, and, and I mean, I personally, like, uh, you know, probably have some of those same hangups. But but that said, what though, about wearing dresses twice? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, but but, you know, the thing is, though, is that like one thing I like about her character arc, just if you're going to like d- dissect it from sort of a feminist standpoint, is that um, is that one, she does prove herself to be able to hang. You know, like he, he basically is just all like, oh, yeah, you know, like you're just like some ornament, you know, like you're just like some piece of high society that's just exists to look pretty and hang out and go to fancy parties. Very uptown chic. Yeah. But like, you know, but when the rubber meets the road, you know, while his ass is stuck in that wheelchair, like looking through the window and and just being a spectator, she's actually like, I'm going to climb up the fire escape. I'm going to go like dig around in his garden. And um. And again, we'll get into more of that later, I'm sure. sure. But uh, but there's actually like a subtle little thing at the end of the movie that I really liked too. It's like in the very last scene where she's laying on the bed and she um, she's reading uh, what was that? Was something like High Himalayas or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, something. Like but that. she's reading like a um, like a travel or hiking magazine, you know, like a like an international travel magazine. Um, that's like very adventurous looking and stuff like that, which is the kind of thing that, um, that Jeff shoots film for. And, um, 
And, you know, she reads that for a bit. She puts it down. She picks up her copy of Bazaar. And it's like, hey, you can be both. Exactly. You know? It's that you're not, people aren't cookie cutter. You know, people aren't like subjugated to one role in life. Um, She said something to Jeff when they were arguing about kind of their relationship where it was like, you expect people to be born and then die in the exact same place. And, you know, she she lives her life. It is a really good line. I mean, she, she argues with him about something that he really doesn't have much understanding. You think that she's the more restricted person when it turns out he is by far because she yeah. adopts this this persona that's really like super empowering. Mm-hmm. She she does things that you're, you you just think, damn, uh-huh. you know, she she's she's fantastic. Yeah. Um so, I mean, what what we were getting into with kind of her being an empowered and strong woman in the face of some pretty, you know, black and white sexism, mm-hmm. um, is the murder. So, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's the main, the main storylines. They're trying to prove this murder happened from a, from an upstairs window. Yeah. Um, is that the story that appealed to you most or, or were you more interested by kind of the little subplots in the, in the soap opera of life in this part of the book? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I um certainly it's it you know, the murder plot is very thrilling and everything. Um I think that I mean, and it's obviously the lead story. Um what the movie does very well, like I was saying before is like, you know, with with characters you don't really meet and talk to. Like you're not like you don't like um Jeff doesn't go down and talk to the lady that, you know, has her little dog that she lets up and down on her uh Oh, in the basket. On like the pulley thing with yeah. the with the basket, which which I love. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um and it's the risk. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you you see you see throughout like um, you know, her relationship with uh, with that man who I personally wasn't entirely like was I mean that was that her supposed to be her her beau or I think her so. husband. Like her husband, I think, yeah. Yeah. But they keep sleeping on the fire escape. I don't know. Yeah. It's very whimsical. It's, um. it, it is. It's just like at the point where it rains, and they're like, "Oh no, we gotta get inside." Yeah. I mean, they don't say that as yeah. you know, it's their body language. But they, you know, they pull the mattress inside. They have uh-huh. an alarm clock hanging from the railing. They like pull it off, but it falls. Uh-huh. And it's it is a very whimsical life. But I mean, everybody though the 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 pianist he um, he has a character arc of going from just like chilling in his apartment alone to being very celebrated as a songwriter, and then he has a record coming out and. Um, uh, what's her nickname again? Oh, Miss uh, Lonely Hearts. Miss Lonely Hearts. She, um, you know, Miss Lonely Hearts. She's cooped up in her apartment, um, basically drinking herself miserable because she's afraid of, uh, you know, dying a spinster, basically. Yeah. And uh, you know, but you know, finds love in the end, and you just see her kind of like her her peaks and valleys in that journey you know yeah well everybody it is and it's neat how they have all these storylines but they do manage to make them intersect pretty seamlessly they do um the dog that you mentioned um was digging around in the flower garden where they it was suspected that the murderer had buried something whether it be like weapons or the body yeah um so the dog is digging around the murderer yells at the dog and then that night you see the basket and the dog, but the dog is dead. And yeah. Someone goes down, like, oh, the dog was strangled and it, its neck was broken. Mm-hmm. And the owner comes out sobbing, the woman who sleeps on the fire escape. Yeah. And she's just screaming, you killed him because he's the only one who liked all of you. Which one of you did it? Which one of you killed my dog? Oh, you don't know the meaning of the word no. 
also an amazing scene because it just relied so heavily on the echo of this giant courtyard. So it's just, there was a party going on in one of the, the apartments and the music stops and everybody yeah. comes out to look and the wedded couple are consoling each other, just looking down at this dog. Well, that moment pulled everybody into the same moment with each other. It wasn't people acting in an isolated manner anymore. All at once now, the story that was going on with the murder plot. Yeah. Because, you know, he's the guy that killed the dog. Yeah. Suddenly, now everyone was pulled into this thing where people were, you know, where Miss Torso stops dancing in her apartment and hanging out with guys and piano guy stops partying with his musician friends yeah. and everybody's out, you know, in the windows and fire escapes and, you know, there's this solemn moment for this dog. And in that moment, community is developed. You're seeing all these, these single stories is people living their lives in a vacuum mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden everybody is brought to the forefront at the same time yeah so it's it's really neat how they developed that yeah. um so we've we mentioned the piano man a couple of times and there's a really fun fact about him yeah um so first um you know as people probably know alfred hitchcock appears in every single one of his films he he pops up somewhere. And he likes to rip off M. Night Shyamalan in oh, that way. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, but he popped up in the piano man's uh, house. Yeah. Uh, or his apartment fixing a clock or something along those lines. But it really brings attention to the piano man and how he has a really interesting story in real life. His name is Ross Bagdazarian. Uh, he is actually the creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks. So it's really cool to... To kind of see him pop up and this, it's a, it's a really interesting crossover. You wouldn't expect the guy who created Alvin and the Chipmunks to appear in a Hitchcock movie. I mean, it's got to be some kind of like a homey feature of just kind of like, you know, Hitchcock's just hanging out with the guy and he's like, hey, Ross, you want to, you know, play piano <laughs> and be a socialite, you know? <laughs> it's something like that. But it's, I mean, and I think his name was, pro and face, honestly, was probably far more recognizable when that came out, when this movie came out. That is a very good point. Um. Okay, so before we get on talking about the plot or some of the ways that things are shot, there's this really interesting piece of history about this movie. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's part of the um, the Hitchcock Lost Five. So that includes, I, I mean, I'm not going to list all of them, but there's a couple titles that are really recognizable, like The Man Who Knew Too Much and yeah. Vertigo and, of course, Rear Window. Hitchcock left the rights to these movies. He purchased them from Paramount. Yeah. And then he left them to his daughter as part of his legacy. Mm -hmm. Um so the studio didn't own the rights to any of these movies, so they weren't released until 1984. Yeah. Even though they were created in the 50s and early 60s, a lot of these movies. Mm. Um, so it wasn't seen until 1984, which is, I mean, really incredible yeah, considering... it's not by the general public. Yeah. yeah. It was released one time on television in 1971, and the studio yep. did that without permission or the rights, so they really were not supposed to, but they just kind of, they kind of did it. Yeah. Um, that's just, it's, it's really a, one of many really interesting pieces of history about, about this movie. Um, there's just so many, it's just, so, it's, it's a fascinating, oftentimes I, I have a lot of trouble finding, you know, facts and verifying them. Just, you know, something that I think could really contribute to the conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, with this movie, it was not hard at all. I mean, I was, I was worried about having too much. Usually I have like two or three pages of notes just on facts this time, yeah. like six. 
Because well, there's just so much going on. It's so there's so much going on. It's a very loved movie by a lot of people that work in film and stuff too. One thing that we were talking about was um well as as um as Adam's partner Claire pointed out, um there was a a sort of soft remake called Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> you know? Um and then uh, and then as I pointed out there was there's um there's an Alfred Hitchcock Halloween episode of that '70s show that, like, very prominently features the uh, the the plot of Rear Window via Fez having a broken leg or something as he's like dressed in lingerie. Yeah, and he thinks that I don't know, like red or no, he thinks that Bob killed Midge. Or whatever, <laughs> you know? I mean, it is. I, this is on this movie's number forty-eight on AFI's top one hundred. Yeah, so it's it's an American classic, um, and. It's, you know, it's definitely well represented in pop culture, both then and now. I, mm-hmm. I think it's really uh, kind of remarkable that it, it was so popular, even though it wasn't released for like 30 years. Yeah, That's really a testament to how well this is written, because, I mean, there's a lot of references. Like the creator of Alvin the Chipmunks being in this movie, yeah. despite that it wasn't nearly as relevant as it was when it was first created. So there, there's a lot of, of really neat stuff like that, and mm-hmm. it's... It's just kind of incredible that it it, despite that major hiccup, it yeah. managed to be so successful to audiences, and honestly, it would have been successful in the fifties. Yeah, it, it, I, I think so. You know, with a little touching up, I think it would be successful if it was released now. You know? I mean, like look at it this way, right? So, um, Adam and I live together with uh, with our partners, Courtney and Claire, and Courtney's my girlfriend. So she kind of walked in like in the last like third of the movie hadn't seen like anything leading up to it didn't have much context for anything that was going on except for like the basic things that people tend to know about this movie because yeah. it's you know just kind of iconic like that yeah. um, and gets parodied so much and uh, and the scene where uh, where Lisa is in Thorwald's apartment to try and see if he, she can find evidence of, uh, of the murder of Thorwald's wife and because they shoot across the courtyard and you can see like, He's behind. He's through one window. She's through another one, and the tension of those two approaching each other is just like, it's 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 just palpable. Like you just you just lock up, and it's just you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. And yeah, for sure. and for Courtney, who hadn't seen like anything leading up to that, it's got all the information you need right there for it to just be a powerful scene. Oh, absolutely. You could really pick it up from anywhere. Yeah. Um. And but still watch the whole thing. Yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah, don't don't <laughs> don't skimp out on anything. Um, so there's, if you have such a limited set, I feel like you have to get incredibly creative as a director to not bore your audiences with the same shot. Yeah. Uh, do you think that Hitchcock manages to do that with this movie? Yeah. Um. One thing that you and I both observed as we were watching it was that um. There are certain little effects throughout that um, that kind of make it more immersive, for instance, as we're viewing through sort of different lenses, if you will. Like, for instance, for the first act of the movie, um, Jeff doesn't have his binoculars on him. He's just kind of looking through his window. And so it's just kind of like like a regular unfiltered shot of, you know, just typical movie camera stuff. Um, when he gets the binoculars, it starts showing it through sort of like a telescope sort of thing where the borders of the frame um, are rounded mm-hmm. as if you're looking through some sort of a scope. Yeah. And, uh, and and also when he gets his camera, except that it also zooms in even further because he has, the, you know, this huge professional lens. Um, and then uh, and then later on, 
when when Thorwald comes to Jeff's apartment to attack him and right. kill him, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's using his flash bulb to uh, to blind him to to try and stagger him and save time while he screams for help. Um, it keeps it, it like you know it it keeps doing these cuts between um, sort of looking at Thorwald from from Jeff's vantage point, like slightly over the shoulder, maybe. Yeah. Um, to being uh, Thorwald looking at Jeff obscured in darkness and that, that red fade of like my eyes were just blinded by this bright bulb yeah. and then his vision coming to over and over again, which was, you know, which I think really added a lot to the tension of the scene. It was also the first time that in the whole movie that you saw anything from someone else's perspective. That is a very good point. So yeah. it, it made it that much more tense. Um, there's a scene that we we talked about when when it happened that really caught both of us as really neat and creative. When the dog was killed, everybody came out um, to you know hear what the woman screaming and sobbing, the owner of the dog had to say, except yeah. for the murderer. Yes. You know, for a minute that Tom Doyle almost had me convinced I was wrong. You're not. Look, in the whole courtyard, only one person didn't come to the window. Look. Why would Thorwald want to kill a little dog? And you look, and there's this, this, just dark yep. room, and yep. you just see every, every, every couple of seconds, this just orange glow of the end of a cigarette. Yeah. So he's just. All, all there was was an orange glow, but you can just picture him sitting in his apartment with his feet up, just smoking a cigarette in the dark. Yeah. And it told so little, told so much about what was going on. Yeah. And you didn't have to see mindset. him sitting there or anything. You just saw that he was the only, like everyone had their lights on, everyone was outside, and he was just in the dark by himself. And you just see that him just coolly smoking that cigarette. You don't even see him. You just see that just the, orange the cigarette glow. is coming and going. And that tells you everything. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. It, 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 it was blew me away yeah um and that's i mean that's the thing too i don't think we've mentioned quite enough when you're looking at an apartment it especially thorwald's apartment um Mm -hmm. there's this long window that shows the bedroom and then you pan left and it shows looks like a continuous window and then it shows the um the living room and then there's a break where there's a wall yep and then there's one more window that shows the doorway like in the hall the hallway coming into the apartment Mm mm-hmm and that split between the living room and the hallway, yeah. that little gap leaves so much to the imagination. Uh-huh. It's 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 a small space, but it really it freaks you out because, like when when Lisa breaks into his apartment and you see Thorwald coming in, yeah, he opens the door and you have no idea if he sees Lisa or not because she might be hiding behind the door, but you can't see her in any of the other windows. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, you know, there's another gap coming the other way and you realize that he saw her. Yeah. But because he's staring, but you can't see her because she's in the gap. And then she moves out of the gap and she's like holding her hands up in a very defensive posture. Uh, you know, that gap hides so much. Yeah. It, and it's it's just, it plays into the perspective that we have of Jeff because he's not seeing what's going on either. Mm-hmm. And even if something is happening, which it does, he can't do anything about it. Yeah. It It's it it's tense. It's absolutely. And I mean... I mean, Hitchcock notoriously is a master of tension. Yeah. I mean, that's like his legacy, I think. And, you know, he's and part of what makes him not only just like a great like horror or suspense or thriller 
uh, you know, filmmaker, but but also just in general, just a great filmmaker is one he knows to show, not tell. And he's great at that. Absolutely. And this movie shows it in spades. And two, he knows when not to show anything. And I think that the brick wall or the dark room are ex- are great examples of that because he's because, you know, he's he's built such a film experience at this point that you as the viewer are just kind of like constantly trying to pick up every little detail in the scene. And so when something is missing like that, like you feel it so much more because it's, it's as if somebody like, you know, pulled a sheet over your head or something like that. You just feel like, you know, you, you suddenly feel like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? What is happening? I have no, like, it's, Yeah, you know, it's 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 a lot more tangible that way, I think. When you when you were talking about that, the scene I was thinking about is um again, going back to when Lisa snuck into Thorwell's apartment. Yeah. Uh they got they, they basically got distracted. Yep. Because they saw Miss Lonely Hearts who is in the floor below mm. Thorwald um with a bunch of pills. Miss Lonely Hearts. Oh, call the police. the police sixth precinct yes sir. and then they pan back up and you see thorwall coming down the hallway and they just missed it so so much developed uh-huh. in that one second and you realize because you were distracted too you're like oh my gosh what's gonna happen what's yeah. gonna happen to miss lonely hearts because frankly to me she was one of the most interesting parts of this movie and i, and so I cared about her i yeah. wanted things to work out and so i'm like no don't do it you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And you think she's like writing a suicide note and she has a drink and her pills and a Bible and you're just, you're, it, it moves. You get really engrossed and then you yeah. go back up and you're like, oh shit, something's happening. Yeah. You're seeing someone come, the, the man that you're worried about. And they, ha- they gave him this kind of this white fedora mm-hmm. and you just see the top of the white fedora because he's looking down while he's walking. Uh-huh. And you, in the left side of the screen, you see him coming down the hall and in the right side, you see Lisa looking through. Uh, the wife's purse for her wedding ring because that was yeah. a major thing. She's like, oh, a wife would never take off her wedding ring. So if the wedding ring's here, then she must be dead. Yeah. Um, and you just see these two disastrous scenes converging on each other with another one going on. Yeah. Because that's the thing is while you're while your attention has moved. Yeah. You know, Mrs. Lonely Heart still has pills. Yeah. You know, there there is still something going down there. Yeah. Um. I mean, it works out for her, but we don't know that. Yeah. It, it, it's. Just, Having a scene really spread out, but all kind of in like visible at one time, yeah, means there are so many storylines to get distracted. Yeah, which means he can he can hide in any of them. He yeah. can do anything he wants. If if he wants to, if something's gonna happen to Miss Lonely Hearts, yeah, he can divert your attention there and then bring you back somewhere else. And now you're worried about Miss Lonely Hearts, and you completely forgot there's a murderer coming home yeah. to find Lisa rummaging through his things. I mean, it's it's the it's just the use of space yeah. is extraordinary. I really think that's one of the, the benefits of having a small yet large set. Uh-huh. You know, you, you have to get creative. And that's really, that's, that's Hitchcock's bread and butter. Well, I also, I mean, you touched upon it earlier when you mentioned um, how Hitchcock had everybody with like an earpiece in, you know. But just think about like the incredible coordination that needs to happen on a, on a technical level of just getting all these actors that are in separate rooms from each other to be moving and playing their part across the at courtyard. the right time yeah. across a courtyard. Like you're down, you know, like I have to imagine that, uh, that <laughs> I have to imagine Hitchcock, like an airline controller or something yeah. just being like, okay, Miss Lonely Heart, you, uh, you take the pills. Okay. Upstairs. I need, uh, I need Lisa to start running. 
okay, uh, Thorwald, I need you to bang on the door, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. That's so much happening. And then especially, and again, like we were saying before, right? Because, like, any soundtrack and stuff, for instance, is almost exclusively um, generated from people within the scene. So if there's something, it's like, say there's piano music going on, that means that the pianist is playing while these other scenes are happening. If, there, if there's a bunch of chatter, it's from the party in Mr. Piano's house, or yeah. there's a record that the, the honeymoon couple are playing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the only scenes that aren't, like, naturally created from the set, where's the beginning, the intro and the outro, where they have this kind of this, this really uh, upbeat jazz ensemble playing. <laughs> But it's really, it's really neat that they use to their advantage the sound that's going on. At, at one point, you know, right towards the end, Miss Lonely Heart goes to, um, she's in the piano man's house and talking about how this new single that he finally wrote got her through a rough time. I hope it's going to be a hit. This is the first release. I'd love to hear it. I can't tell you what this music has meant to me. So... We were processing the song at the same time that she was. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, it's almost like the sound is for everyone and it's for every storyline and it's mm-hmm. for every scene and it's shared. It's a shared experience, which makes the voyeurism seem that much easier, mm-hmm. you know, to digest because you're sharing so much more. Yeah. Um. Kind of last quick note. There was... We, we'd, we'd asked each other and weren't really sure, but thought it was merited discussion about if you thought that they built the set and then wrote, you know, uh, where people were supposed to go. Like, there's, Lisa takes a very direct path and has to duck behind stuff and, you know, um, to avoid Thorwald. So what do, what do you think? Do you think that was, do you think that the set was created and then the kind of the schematics were written? Or do you think they had like a specific idea of how they wanted it to play out? Or do you think they just kind of used it as they went? Like, wow, you know, we have this here. Maybe she can tuck under here. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'd be very, I'd be very fascinated to know if, um, and uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know if if this podcast is gonna have like a comment section or something that people want to reply in. But you know, maybe when this gets posted on Facebook or something, if people want to, and uh, someone who's a big Hitchcock nerd will tell us. But I mean, I'd be very fascinated to know if perhaps they basically just built this courtyard and then was just like, okay, we're gonna put Jeff's apartment over here because it's the best vantage point. Um, or if it was, um, or if they literally based the blueprints of these buildings on, uh, on where things had to happen and, uh, you know, and, and built it that way, because that, I mean, that takes like incredible foresight and planning. And oh, obviously, absolutely. you know, there are very talented people that work in the film industry doing just that very kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, like I'd be very interested to know. Absolutely. So you bring up an interesting logistical point. Um, We've done two tester episodes, uh, one with Connor and one with another yep. guest named Nathan. But um, this is going to be the first widely released episode. Mm-hmm. So if you have a comment that you'd like to make, I'm going to post the link to this web, this podcast on Facebook. Yep. Please get in touch with me. Or if you want to be come on or if you want us to discuss your favorite movie, please let me know. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear it. Um, all right. Final question. Must watch for you? Absolutely. Um, I think that... If you're somebody who I can even even if you're like a little too a little too freaked out by horror or suspense or something, I think that it's it's within reach for anyone. It's not um, it's by no means 
like a uh, like a like a grindhouse kind of thing. Um, it's it's just really excellently paced intrigue throughout, and that would be thrilling to anybody. It's just it's it just gets you on a personal note of just kind of where we all are just enthralled by what's going on around us. Like, you know, like the, what, like, you know, what, what goes on behind closed doors and it, and it really just kind of like, um, it really just satiates that sort of base instinct we have to be curious. Exactly. I think, I think base level voyeurism is, you know, it's, it's very human nature. I think this movie really plays into human nature a lot. Um, and that's what draws you in. It's, Uh It's, it's you want to know what's going on you but you want to see through the window you know you want to you want to gossip about what's happening with the lady downstairs you know yeah it's it it plays into that aspect of how we watch movies but mm-hmm. also there's a lot of really brilliantly done things Hitchcock is one of the most prolific directors ever you yeah. know he's he's incredibly f- famous and known for certain things that he's really good at. And this is a perfect example of this. But on top mm-hmm. of it, it's a really fun movie. You know, yeah. it's it's not it's not one of those movies where you sit down and are like, I need to watch this and like, with a critical perspective. You can watch it however the hell you want. It's true. You really can. It, and not to mention, it has an incredible cast. I mean, this is you know James Stewart in the prime of his career, as, yeah. well, as well as Grace Kelly. Yeah. You know, and the cast is great. It's yeah. this is a must watch movie for me. Yeah. And you can watch it however you want. Yeah, it's not one of those things where you have to see like you know five Ozu movies before you see this Ozu movie. Yeah. You know, it's like just just check it out. Put this in your um, starter pack for classic <laughs> film. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Join us next time as we discuss David Fincher's Gone Girl, the twisted story of a wife's disappearance, the media circus around what happened, and whether or not her suspicious husband was involved. Will we have anything good to say? Will I pronounce misunderstanding correctly? Will we jump the shark? Find out on Rafter Reviews. Window shopper. 